Hello there. Welcome to From Skirts to Scrubs. I'm Charlotte. And I'm Alicia. And we are two medical students trying to figure out our place in medicine by looking to the past and current events to try and understand the impact they have on us as women in medicine and as women in general. Yes, and you can find or follow us on social media. We have an Instagram and Facebook and TikTok, which are at From Skirts to Scrubs. We also have a Twitter, which is at FSTS underscore podcast. And you can check out our website from scrubs.com for more information on our episodes, show notes, sources, merch, and more. Yeah, and you can also subscribe to us and leave us a rating and review And Apple Podcasts and Spotify are great places to do that. Yeah. Okay, so kind of crazy, but we are approaching the end of our current season. Did you know that? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I have one more episode, though, and we're done with the season. Exactly. I have this episode, you have an episode, and then we're done with the season. We had our whole mini-series. We had five episodes before that, and five episodes now. It's been a long time coming. I know. It's it's really crazy. (laughs) But I was thinking about what episode I wanted to do this time, and I remembered... A conversation that I had actually with my roommate and her mom. So my roommate, Mary, um, her mom was a pediatrician and then she like pivoted her life career and is now a primary school teacher. And she's amazing with kids. She's an amazing teacher. And she's actually the person who told me that I should do an episode on Maria Montessori. And so I was like, oh my God, Maria Montessori. I went to Montessori school. I would love to do an episode on her. (laughs) Such a unique path to finding a topic. I know. It really came up out of nowhere. And that's why we keep tabs of all sorts of like inspiration from many places in our lives. That's why we have a very long notes page of ideas. (laughs) The most random things. Yeah. It really. Yes. Yeah. And I thought that today we'd explore the life of Maria Montessori. Because it's been a while since we've done a biography episode, and I think she's pretty cool. So that being said, what do you know about this woman, Charlotte? Do you know anything? I literally don't know a single thing about who this woman is. I didn't even know. Okay, now that Alicia says like Montessori school, I'm like, that sounds familiar. But we all know I like barely speak English. So I didn't even (laughs) register that when I read the name. I was like, I don't even know how to say that last name. Um, so the name sounds familiar, but I don't, I don't know anything. I have literally nothing to contribute. So I am here learning just as much as everyone else who's listening to us. Okay. Well, that's exciting. Then I'm, I'm excited to just dive into her life. She lived like quite an interesting life. Great. Let's do it. All right. So. The interesting thing about this biography is that at baseline, for those of you who don't know, including you, Charlotte, Maria Montessori is a person who is most known for her impact on education theory and teaching. But because a lot of her stuff is on education and teaching specifically with children, A lot of the biographical information that I found about her is either geared towards children or just like super clean because she's like a figure in children's education. But I was able to find some interesting tidbits about her life that I think are like low-key kind of juicy. 
But that's not where we're starting. We are starting with very boring, you know, back at the beginning. Maria Montessori was born. (laughs) (laughs) The juiciest time of all. Maria Montessori was born on August 21st, 1870 in Chiara Valle, Italy. I'm so sorry if I'm pronouncing that wrong. Her dad was this accountant and he like worked for the government. And then her mom was, quote, well-educated and had a passion for reading. So, you know, she was doing her best. Her family moved to Rome in 1870 from her little village where she started going to school at this local state school. And then to no one's surprise, you know, as she tried to increase her knowledge and get higher education, there really weren't many options for women at that time. She wanted to be an engineer, but most girls were studying like classic literature and softer Mm -hmm. kind of skills. So she had really no chance of going to secondary technical school is what it was called. She eventually, it's okay, I know, but she really pivots. She graduates from secondary school, which is just like, you know, high school. And her parents suggested Mm -hmm. that she become a teacher, which was one of the few jobs open to women at that time. But Maria Montessori really wanted to be a doctor. And her dad was Mm. super against this. He was like, no, everyone in med school is a man. You're not going to get in. They're going to be mean to you. And he was right. (laughs) All of those things were true. She really wanted to get into med school and they didn't let her in and it was tough, but she was very, very determined. She was like, I know I'm going to become a doctor. She even said it. She was like, I know I shall become a doctor. (laughs) And eventually, in a surprising, weird turn of events, she did get into medical school, but it was because someone really, really high up pulled for her. Do you have any guesses on who could have enough pull? in 19th century Italy to get the this random woman into medical school. Oh, Italy? Um cuz I was going to say Elizabeth Blackwell, but no. why would she be in Italy? So, is it a woman that we've talked no. about? No. No, oh, it's not a woman, it's a man. I don't know any Italian men. Who is like this Italian? <laughs> it's they don't have to be Italian. Who is this man? He like lives in Italy. He has a lot of power over like a lot of people in the world. The Pope? Yeah. (laughs) I would have never expected that. What do you mean? Why did the Pope know her? I wish I knew. I have tried to figure out this answer. I'm like, why of all people did the Pope find this random nobody girl and then just like propel her to medical school? I could not tell you. Pope Leo the 13th. Yeah, I know. (laughs) But in 1890, she enrolled at the University of Rome, where she studied physics, math, and natural sciences, and graduated two years later and became the first woman to enter medical school in Italy, which is awesome. Obviously, this was a very long and hard road, though. She had to do essentially everything alone because they didn't offer mixed classes. So studying, lectures, and dissections were all done separately. She's just by herself the whole time. She's just by herself. She's just That's hanging just alone. for the medical school. 
I know it's confusing. I don't know. I mean, we all know it doesn't make sense. But she did get a bunch of scholarships and actually paid for med school that way, which is cool. So uh, some people clearly believed in her. Yeah, I mean, the Pope did. So The Pope did. Thanks, Leo. On July 10th, 1896, she graduated from medical school and became the first woman doctor in Italy. And she was just clearly super progressive for her time. She represented Italy at the International Congress of Women's Rights in Berlin. And she gave a speech there about how men and women deserve equal wages. So, yeah, super here for that. Yes, ahead of her time. And exactly. And during this event, a reporter actually asked her how patients respond to a female doctor, like how it's been treating patients. And she said, they know intuitively when someone cares about them. It's only the upper classes that have a prejudice against women leading a useful existence. Which I was like, dang. Oh, I I like that quote a lot. I know. She was like, I'm coming for you. In November of 1896, she was working as a surgical assistant at a hospital in Rome where she mostly tended to sick children, making sure that they were properly fed and cared for. In 1897, she joined a research program at this psychiatry clinic at the University of Rome where she worked with this man named Giuseppe Montesano. And the two of them developed a love connection. Oh, I know. No, I'm going to talk about the tea later, but put a pin in it. The tea is definitely there. Yeah. But coming back to this psych clinic that she was working at. So she, through this clinic and through her research, would be visiting these children's asylums all throughout Rome. And they were just horrible places, which makes sense because at this time, there was really no concept of mental health care. Developmental delay was seen as you know, this concept that the child was possessed by some demonic being, blah, blah, blah. So there was really Mm -hmm. no motivation to help these children in any meaningful way. And she even wrote that at one visit to one of the asylums, that children would be grabbing crumbs off the floor after their meals and that they would be eating them and the caretaker's basically hated these children and found it disgusting and it was just so sad i know what even what even leads to a child going to an asylum i think it was like children with special needs no no i know i know it really it couldn't get worse it it was bad and what was interesting was that maria actually realized that the rooms that the children were living in were completely bare it was just like a bed and that was it there was nothing else in the room and they had nothing to stimulate their little brains and she realized they needed some sort of sensory stimulation like things to play with and stuff to engage their brains yeah and not having that was making them worse so she began doing work with children with developmental delay and was actually doing a lot of reading on how to work with children and learning theory. And so she did a lot of reading from works from these two French dudes, Jean-Marc Itard and Edouard Seguin. And they were two guys who were very against the regimented schooling traditions of the time. 
And in their writing, they emphasized mutual respect and just generally respecting and understanding each individual child and meeting the children where they were at individually. And so they created these different kinds of like equipment, essentially, to help develop children's motor senses and, you know, sensory development in general. So okay. they I wouldn't really call them toys, but they were essentially toys that help children's motor and sensory function. Okay. So just sim- simple toys. Simple toys that could be viewed as toys, but in a different context could be viewed as like educational materials. Right. In 1898, at 28 years old, Maria started sharing and speaking on her opinion that children who were developmentally delayed or disturbed, as they called it in some way, lacked the support they needed, which is why they became delinquent, (laughs) and that through education, we could help these children succeed. Okay, so now we're circling back to Maria's love connection, because this all becomes relevant. And this is such tea, because Maria had a big life decision to make at one point. So that Giuseppe guy, Giuseppe Montesano, was working with her and they had a love connection and then she got pregnant from him from him by him oh pregnant via him and she had a choice to make she was either going to have to marry him and give up on her career and live at home to raise her son or not marry him and raise her child alone with the terrible stigma of her social situation weighing on her I know. Bad options. Both are bad options. And ultimately, she didn't do either of them, actually. So she ended up deciding with Giuseppe to send their child away to the countryside to be raised by a wet nurse. And she and Giuseppe agreed, kind of verbal agreement style, that they were never going to marry anyone else, that they were just going to kind of keep doing their thing. Child is kind of gone, disappeared. And they were going to keep living their lives. But Giuseppe broke his promise because you can't trust these dudes and (laughs) married this woman named Maria April. And got a thing for Maria's? Yes. The source I was reading was literally like, he's got a thing for Maria's. And I was like, that's suspect. (laughs) But I'm also like, was everyone in Italy in the 1890s named Maria? Maybe. There's a good likelihood. But Giuseppe, when he married Maria, other Maria, took custody Mm -hmm. of Mario, their son. And so then Mario came back to Italy or to Rome and was living with Giuseppe and his new wife. And that was tough. And so for 14 years, Maria, like, didn't really have contact with Mario. She just dove into her work. But when he was 14, Mario decided that he wanted to get to know his mom and they reconnected. And it was all good, actually. I don't know how it just suddenly became okay, but he just decided that he wanted to reconnect with her and was just never upset with her for for making him leave. I don't know. No sources really got into it. Maybe it was like a forgive and forget situation. Yeah, I mean, it probably took much longer than I'm making it out to have taken. So (laughs) they got over it, but it was touch and go for a while. And I was like, dang, that is some tea. The baby out of wedlock in 1890s Italy doesn't seem great. 
But anywho, Giuseppe and Maria, before they had Mario, opened a school together called the Orthophrenic School, where they took kiddos who had a broad spectrum of different special needs and taught them. And this was a big turning point in Maria's career because she officially at that point went from being a physician to an educator. And she had been taking her ideas that were only theories about children's education and now were applying them to actual children. But she only worked at the orthophrenic school for a couple of years. In 1901, she left and started to continue studying. She was big into like lifelong learning, clearly, because she started studying (laughs) philosophy and anthropology And in 1904, she became a lecturer at the Pedagogic School of the University of Rome, where she stayed for four years. And pedagogy, for those of you who don't know, is the study of learning and teaching. And so she was basically at the teaching school for the University of Rome, like the education program. She was there for four years. It's cool that she went back to her alma mater. I know. She was there kind of a lot. But interestingly, it was during this time that Rome was growing just in size, in stature, and whatever. It was just growing really Mm -hmm. fast, but they didn't have the infrastructure to accommodate all of the people that were moving to Rome and all the babies that were being had. Mm. And so Rome ended up having to work and do all this building and like building up place for basically like slums to not be so slummy. And places mm-hmm. for poor families to be housed. And it was just a messy situation for a while. But while the city was working on their infrastructure issues, there were all these people who were working and they were working during the day and didn't have a place for their kids to go. So oh. these developers reached out to Maria and asked if there was a way for her to essentially open more schools. She opened her first children's house on January 6, 1907, and was actually really excited because she was very interested in working with neurotypical children and seeing how they would develop with the same materials that were used that she had created at the orthophrenic school for the children with special needs. Okay. Yeah. And so she opened her first children's house, and at this school, she realized that her approach to teaching was essentially just giving kids a space where they could naturally develop the power to educate themselves. So it's a very like autonomous teaching ethos. And she called it auto-education. So literally super autonomous. By autumn of 1908, there were five schools open and five-year-olds were like reading and writing. They were just chugging along. Nice. I know. They were doing so well. News of Maria's achievements were reaching all sorts of people, and in the summer of 1909, she gave her first training course to a group of 100 students who were looking to become teachers, and she taught them the Montessori method. Then, in 1912, she published a book by the same name, which ended up being second place in the U.S. nonfiction bestseller list, which I was like, that sounds really dry. But <laughs> okay, that's I mean, good for her. People it loved was, it, apparently. People <laughs> really loved it. Maybe they were thinking about using it to, you know, raise their kids, which I could see. Yeah. But I was like, OK, Maria, good for you. She started doing all these trainings and 
schools based on the Montessori method were just popping up everywhere, especially in America, Europe, and the UK. But unfortunately, World War I really put a damper on her expansion because war will do that. Yeah. She ended up moving to Spain in 1917 with her son because they had rekindled their relationship. So she moved right. to Spain with her son and his first wife, Helen Christie, because she wanted to create a permanent center for research and development of early childhood education. and. kind of like left Italy with her son to go try to do that but it was just not possible because after the war there was just so much geopolitical change and fascism was running rampant in Europe and that made Mm -hmm. it essentially impossible all of the Montessori schools in Germany were closed in 1933 with an effigy of her literally burned above a bonfire of her books in Berlin so that's great (laughs) Yeah, they did not like her teachings and they were not here for her open-mindedness about children and they just hated books. So there's that. In the same year, Maria refused to cooperate with Mussolini, the Italian fascist, because he wanted to incorporate Italian Montessori schools into the fascist youth movement. So basically just like take Montessori education and be like, this is now fascist education. And she was like, literally, no, I don't want that. What are all these people are so the Pope (laughs) coming after her? Nazi Germany? (laughs) Italian fascism? (laughs) You really had to pull on people, man. Dude, it keeps going. You won't even (laughs) guess what comes next. But yeah, essentially the Spanish Civil War is what forced her out of Spain. So her family Mm -hmm. moved from Spain to England and then from England to the Netherlands because they were staying with this like family that they knew. And eventually, actually, her son married, remarried and married this woman who they like moved in with. That's not that relevant, but just, you know, side note. Fun facts. Fun facts. But... In 1939, Maria and her son really, really pivoted. They went from the Netherlands to India for a three-month training class that they were giving. Like, they were going there to teach people how the Montessori method for three months. Three months became seven years because they could not go back to the Netherlands or to Europe, and they were kept under house arrest for some reason because they were Italian citizens in India yes but I'm very confused about the India thing because the Indians actually loved her they super loved her but it was weird because for seven years like Mario was like in a little intern and he was forced to work and Maria was under house arrest but also the Indians really loved her but I have no idea how they could have loved her because how could they even get to know her if she was under house arrest So I have so many questions that I don't know the answer to. And maybe someone out there does. (laughs) And I would love to hear from them. To understand. But this super famous Indian guy met her. You're looking at me like I should know. You will know. He's like the most famous Indian guy of all time. Like Gandhi? (laughs) 
why everyone why <laughs> oh my god it's so funny she's I know. like i'm just gonna meet like all these like religious and political leaders throughout my life get them to like me yeah literally gandhi the prime minister prime minister nehru like also knew her oh my god and then another famous person that maria montessori knew was this woman in america who there's no way i well (laughs) no no she wasn't a doctor she was more of a student she was probably one of america's most famous students because she had such disability that it was crazy Helen Keller yes (laughs) oh my god Maria Montessori knew Helen Keller and actually it was because she knew Helen Keller and Helen's whole thing was that she's deaf and blind and so she had to touch a lot of stuff that the like sensory learning was like also in line with the Montessori teachings (laughs) oh my god what isn't that crazy like this woman knows everyone Yes, it's like people are like drawn to her. Yeah, clearly. I I didn't know this. You didn't know her at all. You don't even know who she was. No. I had no idea. <laughs> uh, but shooken. anyway, coming back to India. So she knew Gandhi, she knew the prime minister. They loved her. The Indians loved her. They were like, OMG, Montessori school is so cool. It's great. On her mm-hmm. 70th birthday which she was literally in India when she was 70, poor woman. Her gift that she asked from these very famous people was for her son to be released from his, like, indentured servitude, basically, and for him to come home. And they let him come home because they loved her so much. But I'm, again, so confused about how they even know her. But in... 1946, she was finally able to return to the Netherlands with her son. And they still had grandchildren there. Their whole family was still there. In 1951, she had her last public address in London at the International Montessori Congress. Didn't even know that was a thing, but I guess they have these big conferences. And on May 6, 1952, in the Netherlands, Maria died from a brain bleed of unknown origin. Aww. I know. But her whole family was with her and she went peacefully. So I was like, okay, that's good. But yeah, that's that's generally her biography. But I thought I would give a little bit of background on her educational philosophy. Because we're talking all about her life, but like, what is her legacy? What? Did she leave behind? So the Montessori education philosophy is based on the idea that in learning or in the process of learning, every child should be treated as an individual in their own right. The fundamentals of this philosophy are one, independence. So this is the idea that the teacher should never help a child with a task that the child feels that they can do on their own. They should just be provided the necessary materials and guidance to help the child do the task on their own, but we should allow the child the space and time to be accomplished and do their own things. Two, 
an absorbent mind, the idea that kids learn by experience, especially from birth to six years old, and can absorb simply by engaging in their environment. Three, correcting children should not be done with overreacting or raising the voice, but by calmly pointing out a mistake and redirecting them to rectify it. Four, following up on a child should involve educators meeting the child where they're at. Don't push them too hard, but don't be too overprotective of them either. Really find that sweet spot of, you know, continuously following up, seeing what the child needs, helping them accomplish those needs, and pushing themselves to have autonomy over their learning, even as little bebes. Five, having a prepared environment. So Montessori classrooms are a single learning space where everything has a place and a purpose so that kids can help create a layout in their mind that has logic because the idea is that if the environment is logical, then their brains can form in a way that has order and logic as well. Yeah, all these things like make a lot of sense. And the last thing is educating the whole child. So a child's education should go beyond math, reading, and writing. It should be about exploring the child's physical, emotional, and social development in the environment that they are growing up in. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And so in Montessori schools, the vibes are very, it's very cute in there. I actually, so I went to a Montessori school for elementary school. And the Mm. vibes are like individual desks instead, like there's some individual desks, but mostly like either there's tables that are all put together so that you're at like a group table always, or there's no Mm -hmm. desks at all, especially for the little, little ones. There's no desks. There's just mats Mm. that you put on the floor. There's child size tables. And They really prioritize like hands-on learning. So they have all these like different ways and things you can touch and things that you can use to learn where you're literally like touching and moving things. Like when you're learning to do math, you're literally like moving blocks around and doing the math like by moving things. You have these things like every day at the same time. You have this schedule. It's called circle time where children will sit cross-legged all in a big room and they'll share news and like participate in group lessons. So it's very like group learning, like it's very tender. And then there's Mm -hmm. also choice time when children make themselves like busy doing whatever it is that they want to do. So they can do art, they can do music, they can build towers, they can like engage with their environment however they want. But A huge irony of Maria's fight, though, for the poorest and least powerful in society when she first started teaching is that now its most visible legacy of the Montessori method and Montessori schools are these selective elite private schools. Because not all like most schools are not Montessori schools. There are these posh high private schools where kids are wearing uniforms and going and paying thousands of dollars. And there's a lot of argument about this because in one sense, it makes sense that since Maria 
created this intellectual property and she was spreading her practice. She was selling her ideas and also profiting from them. But on the other Mm -hmm. hand, her method was born in asylums and slums, and it was not at all serving the white and wealthy. And so it's interesting to see kind of where the Montessori method started and where it's come and kind of where we're going from here. But I just thought that was like an interesting food for thought to share about her Mm -hmm. and her whole teaching philosophy. But I want to end with this quote by her where she says, our purpose is to become teachers. Now, what really makes a teacher is love for the human child, for it is love that transforms the social duty of the educator into the higher consciousness of a mission. And with that, I thought we'd just chat about education and clinicians and doctors and Maria and all the things. Let's do it. I'm down. Char, so any initial thoughts on this, on her, this woman and her life? I mean, other than she met all these famous people. Yeah, she was balling. A gravitational force for famous people and like influential people, both good and bad in the world, apparently. Also, I was like completely not expecting the way her like method came about, I guess. Like the Mm -hmm. path of her being a doctor who then like did like asylum work and then from there developed this teaching method is interesting. Like the fact that, you know, it's not like the, her being a doctor had like a ton to do with her teaching method, but it's like that part of her life led her directly to working in the asylums and then, yeah. you know, coming up with this like method for teaching. And then, like you said, it's interesting that it is like a private school and like elitist almost like way of like schooling now Mm -hmm. um when it was based on just lower socioeconomic status that's why i was like i feel like i've heard of these schools before but i kept thinking like i feel like their school i don't like i didn't know anyone who went to them and like it makes sense now that they're private schools when you said that i was like adds up more of why like have heard of it but didn't know much about it because there's not many private schools in my area um i just didn't know so that's kind of just like the whole whole like journey of developing this teaching method it's really interesting then um I like how she like went back and became a professor in education it was like such a flip from where she started yeah but it was still like all in the same space um like in the same school and just like how it all revolves around Rome was interesting yeah I don't know it's the whole story just like took me by surprise I guess I know. Honestly, I didn't know much about her history. I just knew that she was a figure in education. And then it was when Mary's mom told me that she used to be a doctor that I was like, oh, my gosh, this is so fascinating. I wonder what this woman's deal is. And I think Mm -hmm. something that I do find interesting, but I didn't look that much into the direct correlation is I think it's so fascinating that her education philosophies are so in line with a lot of psychology and development stages Yeah, because we just learn that in psychology, you know, children grow and develop in these certain ways. They need to have autonomy. They need to be built up and supported and loved and nurtured. 
And essentially, she was just saying that we're not meeting children's needs in these asylums. What can we do to meet their Mm -hmm. needs better? And that is the central spark of her overall pedagogical practice, you know, like that is what she decided that Mm -hmm. children needed. But I thought it was interesting, the correlation, which I doubt was a one to one. Like, I don't think she knew these actual theories in psychology that then led her to believe that children needed certain things. But I do wonder if she noticed that and then went back and because of going back to school, found these correlations to development stages and teaching. But yeah, so that kind of leads into my next question, which is a simple question, but I really think there's a lot to unpack here. So do we, as medical professionals in our society, do we value our educators and in the field of medicine, do we value our clinician educators? Why or why not? I mean, I think it's hard. I don't want to generalize how other people feel about it, but I can tell you a little bit about my experience teaching and teaching in medicine. I will say that when I was in college, I was not like a tutoring teaching person. I didn't see the value in it. My mom was a teacher. I, I used to want to be a teacher. Then I thought it was really boring. And I never <laughs> decided to be a doctor instead. Um, and I never was like big into teaching in high school. And then I worked in inner city schools before medical school and really like, I don't want to say fell in love with teaching because I wouldn't say that's how I feel about it. But like, I just really saw the importance of teaching and how like bad education is really like impactful. And so it was like, the inverse of having like excellent education and how that really changes your life trajectory and also like how you think and feel about yourself. Um, so that like experience before I went to medical school really changed my entire perspective on teaching and then mm-hmm. going into med school and working with populations who are in a low, lower socioeconomic status and are underserved and have like lower health literacy rates, the like importance of teaching became so evident to me. Like my, like, I don't know, everything I've done in med school has been about increasing education for like patients and helping them advocate for themselves, which you can only really do if you have like the self understanding to be able to do that, which comes with education, especially like mm-hmm. health literacy education. So that's kind of my journey, I guess, to coming to really appreciate clinician educators and like now wanting to be one when like originally when I entered medical school, like that wasn't even a thought that crossed my mind because it just wasn't anything I had experienced at that point. But now it's so important. I like am very aware when I even like in patient encounters, like I'm very aware when I talk to patients, how like much medical jargon I'm using, how much I need to teach in that moment. Um, because medicine is such a you know wide field and sometimes even just like the smallest jargon can be really confusing for people if they have mm-hmm. no idea even of simple anatomy like anatomy isn't strongly taught in schools that don't have the resources so there's a lot of people who don't even know like what organs they have outside of the ones that are like talked about a lot like your heart and you know stomach and lungs and stuff like that so it's just like a lot of education that's needed in healthcare. And so I think it's extremely important for clinicians to be educators because if you can't educate your patients, then they can't make decisions about their own health. And that is kind of what 
you should be doing as a physician or any healthcare provider. You should never be making medical decisions without patients like being involved in that process. And they cannot be involved if they don't understand what's going on with them. So I guess that's kind of my feelings on the matter. Um, and yeah, I've definitely come to appreciate clinical educators and like really want to be one. Does that mean I want to teach at a medical school? I'm not sure, but like within my own practice and within my own interactions with patients and the communities I want to work in, the things I want to do in my life, like being an educator has become like a really big part of that as well. Definitely. I think thinking about education and educating patients and advocating for them kind of go hand in hand, which is something I know you really care about as we all should care about and we should care about more. And I think something that I've been just personally ruminating on more is the role of a kind of traditional clinician educator in the sense of being a true, like just a teacher, like teaching Mm -hmm. medical students, teaching residents, teaching fellows. I think that also comes with being in a field that requires so much training. And Mm-hmm. We all have to be teachers at some point as physicians, but I think something I've been thinking about more, especially as we're approaching residency applications and thinking about our futures and what that might look like, I can really see myself as a true clinician educator, like at an academic place where I'm teaching students mm-hmm. and engaging with them. I've loved teaching in the literal sense for a long time. But something I've been thinking about and some mild reading that I've been doing is just, do we value like academic clinician educators? And we do, I think, like, I think being a clinician automatically gives you a lot of value in our society because that's just how we are. Mm -hmm. But I've been reading some interesting just kind of articles that are talking about how the actual work that the clinician educators do is not necessarily what is valued about them, but it's rather the Hmm. peer-reviewed scholarly outcomes that they have from their Mm -hmm. medical education work that is seen as valuable. And so it's not even the work that's valuable necessarily. It's the work that leads to research that's valuable. And that is not a blanket statement. That is not always how it is. but I'm just reading an article that does talk about that. And I find that really frustrating because I just, I have a lot of respect for academia. And then I also have qualms with it. I think it would be silly of me to Mm -hmm. say otherwise and dishonest, but some part of me in the most simple lizard brain version of my mind, part of me is like, oh, well, if women are often the teachers and then teachers are undervalued, then is that phenomenon what applies to clinician educators? And this is just, Mm. this is not based on any evidence. I have no idea. This is just a theory that I would need to really look into. But I'm like, if being an educator and being a teacher is a soft skill that women have been allowed to do for a long time, do we value our clinician educators or do we see them as extensions of being teachers, which in our larger society is not something that we value, which we should. Mm -hmm. Teachers are significantly underpaid and undervalued. We know this. I firmly believe it. And yet Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, if we were to take it out of the day to day and took it to a level of like medical academia, would we see that same disparity? I don't know. Yeah, it's a good question. 
but it's yeah, frustrating. The, in general, teachers, like non-physician teachers, don't get, yeah, I agree, don't get even close to the amount of respect that they deserve. Thanks. Like I said, my mom was a teacher her entire mm-hmm. life and she worked so hard. And my dad is a physician, so I can like very mm-hmm. easily compare the two. And she like, my dad gets home and like has work to do, but like my mom would be up all morning getting stuff ready for school, go and work as a teacher, come home and then still do stuff all night because she cared so much. Like her need to learn more, how to like learn more about learning, teaching methods, make the best lesson plans and things going on with kids in their personal lives and talking to like there's so much involvement from teachers which people don't see if you like don't know teachers well because you only see them in the classroom and you're like oh teachers work like eight to three and they only work like nine months out of the year such an easy job yeah they don't deserve to get paid that much and it's like well actually they kind of get to work at like seven and they get home at like six and then they continue working and then they also usually work during the summers too yeah it's because they have it off like they're still doing things i don't know they deserve a lot more respect and it's like really hard have you ever tried to teach like a four-year-old? <laughs> it's <extremely laughs> not the four-year-olds. <laughs> I love them. They're so cute, but it is so difficult. Have you ever tried to teach someone how to like add and subtract? I know I did in my year before medical school and it is so hard because you're like, I don't understand why you don't understand that two plus two equals four, you know, like right. it's it's just like a, a level that I, I wouldn't be able to do it for my life because I like yeah. don't have the patience. And so I have a lot of respect for teachers because they're yeah. like magicians. They'd be able to teach children things that like adults understand is crazy. Yeah. And actually it's interesting that you say that because something that that just jogged in me is something I'll share here. Cause it's a quote that I think about a lot. So one of my mentors Dr. Jim Richardson, he's a PM&R doctor here. He like always wins all of these teaching awards and he just loves teaching. He does not do as good of a job as a teacher because he's caring about these accolades, but he mm-hmm. always tells us that the most important thing to remember as a teacher is what it felt like to not know the answer and what it felt mm-hmm. like to be a trainee and to be a student. And he's applying it to medical education, saying like, when you're an attending, remember what it was like to be a student or a resident where the answer did not come to you right away. Now, as an attending, you're yeah. like, oh, yeah, obviously, that's like, for sure the answer. But that al- that wasn't how it is always. And so that's what it reminded me of when you're trying to teach a four-year-old. I think it's really, really hard. It's hard to teach a college student. It's really, really hard hard to teach a four-year-old how to do something that you don't even remember learning how to do, which is basic math. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so much respect for teachers. We love you so much. And to our clinician educators who helped us get to where we are, we also love you. Yeah. It makes a big difference to be a student in the hospital with someone who actually like understands and gives you space to like learn instead of making you feel bad about not knowing thing yeah kind of like you said exactly you have to remember that you were once a medical student as well um makes a really big difference makes you enjoy what you're doing probably will help students go into your specialty if you are really like a good teacher (laughs) yeah i agree but if you like learning about maria montessori's life and you want to learn about more things like this or just hear fun facts or just hear us chit chat 
you should subscribe to our podcast and leave us a rating and review. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, those are both great places for that. Yeah, and then you can also follow us on social media. All of our social media handles are in like the description of each podcast episode. You can also check out our website for more information, show notes, sources, merch, and more at fromskirtsandscrubs.com. And lastly, here is to the women who have fought for us to be where we are today. And maybe do the same for those who come after us. Thanks, everyone. See you next time. Bye.